0: Now, it is true that all preaching contains teaching, but not all teaching contains preaching. For example, in my teaching, I am typically more elastic and take great liberty in what I teach because I want the student to join me in the discovery of what I'm saying. It's sort of a hands-on laboratory sort of mindset. But preaching is the proclamation of God's truth. There is very little wiggle room with preaching. So how do you tell the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, the answer, I think, is passion. It's passion. A true preacher will have passion. And the way that you detect that he's in preaching mode is when he says, Thus saith the Lord when his voice raises. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, take your Bibles this morning and be turning with me to the book of Romans once again, the book of Romans. We find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 2. We want to look at verses 17 through 29, where Paul is um, continuing to speak about the fact that we are under the law, and because we are under the law, we therefore reveal our guilt of sin. The title of the message, Mere Religiosity Exposed. Well, so far in Paul's letter to the Romans, he has indicted the entire world before God's tribunal. In verses 18 through 32, he has indicted the Gentile. And last week we saw in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2 that he has indicted the Jew. But what Paul says to both actually applies to both, generally speaking. That is to say, both the Jew and Gentile had God revealed to them. The Gentile had God revealed to him in creation, chapter 1 and verse 20, and in his conscience, chapter 2 verses 14 and 15, the law of God being written on his heart and the Jew had God revealed to him through special revelation that is specifically through Mosaic law both were we could say verse or chapter 1 verse 20 without excuse Because both knew that the practice of sin, verse 32 of chapter 1, made them worthy of death and eternal separation from God. Paul summed all of this up nicely in chapter 2 and verse 12 when he said, For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, that is Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law that is Jew. You see, Paul has gone back and forth speaking about the guilt and looming judgment of both Jew and Gentile. But now in verse 17, Paul is going to zoom in on the sin problem of the Jews. And why does he do this? Well, let me quote Calvin, that he might with greater force beat down their vanity. You see, the central sin of the Jew was his vanity or his pride. Now, when we think of vanity, we might imagine a person that is so narcissistic that they can't walk past a mirror without examining how good they look. Well, that's the best way, I think, to think about the Jews and what they had become during Paul's day. They were so inflated that their religious mirrors were not used for self-examination, for flaws, but as a means to see how good they look. And so what does Paul do? Well, he shatters their mirrors and he picks up a magnifying glass to look more deeper and to expose in a really non-PC way, their flaws and their religious ugliness that went beyond the surface. He says here in verse 17 that they were boastful. He says here in verse 19 that they were blind. He says here in verse 24 that they were blasphemous. I mean, imagine the equivalent of a famous preacher's Twitter, Twitter or Facebook account The letter to the Romans was eventually circulated as all of the New Testament epistles were circulated to some degree. Paul's letter, therefore, was like a social media post that went viral. He speaks here about God's old covenant people, the Israelites, and what he says is not flattering at all. This viral post and condemning comment, comments expose the vile ugliness of the average Christ-rejecting Jew. Now you need to remember that Paul first looked into his own mirror. And saw his ugliness in spite of his religious pedigree. We read about this in weeks prior in Philippians chapter 3. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. As to the law, he was blameless. But Paul says, I count all of that as loss." for Christ. In fact, I count it as rubbish. I count it as dung. It it means nothing in God's eyes. Well, beginning in verse 17, Paul tells us that the covenant privileges of the Jews, namely their possession of the law and the circumcision that they prided themselves in, will prove valueless unless they see the value of Christ. Because you see, folks, they had lost Christ in the junk room of their tradition. They were living in the past. The old covenant was now obsolete. They were in the new covenant, and yet they were living in the past. And so Paul is continuing in this passage his diatribe method. If you weren't here with us last week, the diatribe method was something that Greek rhetoricians used where they had an imaginary dialogue partner that they talked to. And so the recipient of this letter to the Romans, being the Roman Christians, basically as they read this letter aloud and as I preach it to you this morning, what you see is an exchange between the great apostle and a self-righteous unbeliever. Jew who has rejected the gospel and so in verses 17 through 29 Paul essentially pops the balloon of Jewish pride and presumption to show that they are guilty violators of the law in spite of their religiosity and therefore they are not immune to God's judgment but they have opened themselves up to God's judgment he exposes the mere religiosity of the self-righteous Jew placing him under intense scrutiny in four soul-searching ways. Four soul-searching ways. Notice with me, number one, he gives a pictorial characterization by Jews. Verses 17 through 20, a pictorial characterization by Jews. In other words, this is how the average Jew viewed himself. And Paul uses eight verbs. We're going to call them eight characteristics of Jewish self-confidence. Notice with me, first of all, Paul speaks about the fact that they had pride in their name. The beginning of verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew... And now that statement is essentially the beginning of a thought that builds and builds and builds until verse 21 with that phrase. But if you call yourself a Jew, you then who teach others, verse 21, do you not teach yourself? They had pride in that title Jew. This title was used after the dispersion. This is the scattering of the Israelites into their various forms of captivity. It literally means a descendant of Judah, the tribe of Judah, but it later came to refer to all the inhabitants of Judea, which was the province on which Jerusalem was located. So piecing together comments of Josephus and even John Calvin's own speculation, perhaps the reason why Jew, that title, came to mark all of God's people, even though originally it only applied to those of the tribe of Judah, relates to the scattering. The scattering of the Jews meant that there was no precision over which tribe one belonged to it became muddled, and as a result, the people of Israel collectively assumed the name Jew because. It was that tribe, the tribe of Judah, from which the word Jew derives, that the Jews viewed to be the purest of all Jewish tribes, and in fact, the tribe from which the Messiah would come. Genesis 49 verse 8 tells us that Judah was one of Jacob's own sons. So that word Jew, the root meaning Judah, means literally in the Greek, praised. The Jews wanted to be praised for their name. You remember that the religious members of the Sanhedrin proudly told Jesus on one occasion in John 8, we are Abraham's offspring. That is to say, they wanted to steal God's praise that was due to his name. They were content to receive all of the praise as if it was owed to them and While it is true that God sovereignly placed his love on Abraham's family, we read about that in Deuteronomy 7, it wasn't because of anything they had done. In fact, God had chosen them because they were the least of all the peoples. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Bible says, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. Fine, we get that, but it wasn't So the people could receive praise, but so that God could receive praise. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 21, the people whom I formed for myself, I did that they might declare, God says, my praise. God wanted to be praised. And Isaiah goes on to say in that same passage that the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. In other words, if the Israelites aren't going to praise me, I'll have my my animal kingdom do that. And perhaps this is why when the Jews were being baptized by John the Baptist and the Jordan and the Pharisees and the Sadducees approached John that he refused to baptize them. Instead, he rebuked them because they were using baptism as a ritualistic religious show and not accompanied with true repentance. And John said to them, do not suppose you can say to yourselves or praise yourselves. We have Abraham for our father, John says, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. God will find a way to be praised if you're not going to do it. Similarly, during his triumphal entry, when the crowds were cheering the name Hosanna in honor of Christ the religious leaders told Jesus to rebuke his disciples and get them to shut up and to be quiet and Jesus says I tell you if these were silent the very stones would cry out but the Jews wanted to be praised so they prided themselves in that name Jew now let me just say it's not wrong to have a sense of national pride For the Jews, the issue was they had national pride associated with spiritual pride in their religious heritage, but they didn't really glorify God's name or praise his name. They received all the praise for themselves, but they were characterized by more than just pride in their name. They were also characterized, notice verse 17, by trust in the law. Paul goes on to say, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, this is essentially a repeat of verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. But that is what the Jews thought. They thought that mere possession of the law served as a sort of security, but in actuality it laid a foundation for self-confidence and superiority, where they believed that they could earn their salvation. Because they relied upon the law. Paul will later say in chapter 7 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And even the psalmist declares in Psalm chapter 1 that we are to delight in God's law. The fact is that God blesses those who obey His law. Psalm 119, blessed are those whose way is blameless, blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. But Paul describes that the purpose of the law had another function if you turn with me to chapter 7 he describes it to us in verse 7 he says what then shall we say that the law is sin paul says by no means yet if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin for i would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet so the purpose of the law was to reveal sin Now, it's not our purpose here to discuss the various roles of the law in the lives of God's people, except to say that the law was never intended to be a means by which one earns salvation. And if that is your way of thinking, you are guilty like the Jew. You are relying on the law. But there was a third characteristic of the self-righteous Jew. He also boasted in his relationship to God. Notice verse 17 again, and your boast is in God. It is true that religious people always find a way to distort everything. They should have boasted, but they should have boasted in God in a way that gave him praise. Instead, the verb that is used here is actually translated or could be translated as as brag. What exactly does Paul have in mind that these Jews were bragging about I think we have a clue in the book of Galatians just listen to these verses Paul says for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world Paul says that what they were doing was boasting in the flesh because they were boasting in the right of circumcision and Paul says I'm going to only." boast in God and and what that means I'm not going to boast in circumcision I'm going to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so the Jews boasted that their relationship with God was so unique because God had prescribed to them the right of circumcision and I think the Galatians 5 passage helps clarify that not only because it's it's Paul speaking in another place but because later in this passage Paul speaks about circumcision he discusses that and he discusses it again in chapter 4 as well So what Paul says is really not novel when he talks about the negative aspect of of circumcision because it is actually what the prophets spoke of as well, that the Jews were trusting in circumcision. Therefore, they were boasting in God in a way that distorted the true meaning of circumcision. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He says nothing in here, God doesn't say anything in here, about delighting in circumcision. He delights in true obedience to the law of God. But here you have a self righteous Jew that is relying upon the law and is a hypocrite. He's not even doing the things of the law. He's boasting in God and boasting in his circumcision, not therefore really boasting in God. And fourth, the Jews boasted in knowing God's will. Notice verse 18, and know his will. Because they possessed God's law, they also knew God's will. But you understand this morning that knowing God's will and doing God's will are two totally different things, just as knowing God's law and doing God's law are two different things. But they boasted in their knowledge. As the old King James Version says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. They were puffed up in their knowledge and they had no love, which is the summary of God's law. Fifth, Paul says the Jews bragged because they approved excellent things. Verse 18, do you see that? They approved what is excellent. The word approved is dakamadzo. It was actually used in Paul's day to test metals like silver and gold, whether or not it was real. Well, the Jews had God's law, which helped them distinguish or approve right from wrong and understand not just the letter, but also the spirit of what was behind the law so that they could approve or disprove certain lifestyle choices and to know an excellent way to live before God. But Paul's point here is that they weren't as good at it as they thought. For example, to the most zealous of Jews, the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said on one occasion, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin.'" Those are tiny little spices, But I've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, Jesus says, without neglecting the others. They focused on the letter of the law and therefore the tiny aspects of the law that were to be obeyed, and they didn't even have eyes to see the weightier things of the law. So in actuality, Paul's point here is that you had the ability to approve what was right and wrong and what was excellent, but in your hypocrisy, you didn't do that. They also prided themselves in the fact that they were students of the law, verse 18. Because you are instructed from the law. As you can see, all of these sort of run together, but they're distinct and they're nuanced because Paul uses eight different verbs. When he says, because you are instructed from the law, have you noticed that everything comes back to the law for the Jew? He prided himself in the fact that he was instructed. That is uh, one Greek verb. Actually, you are instructed is one Greek verb, kateke'o. It is where we get our English word catechism, which is the repetition of oral instruction with the answers provided. As Reformed people, we believe strongly that God's Word and God's Word alone forms our views of God and life. We have an inflexible commitment to sola scriptura, scripture alone, which is not the same thing as solo scriptura. That is the idea, Jesus in my Bible, I need no catechisms or confessions. No, as Reformed people, we believe in sola scriptura, and that even comes out in the way that we are instructed as religious people. Number one, through preaching, which is a monologue where we hear from God's word through the exposition of God's word, and then through catechizing, where we ask questions in a setting where actually we're not interested in what you think the answer is, but in what God says the answer is. That's why the answers are provided. My favorite subject growing up in school was P.E., But if I had to pick a second subject, it would be math. Not because I was good at math, but I knew that I could get at least a 50% on my homework because the answers to the odd-numbered math problems were found in the back of the book. Well, the summarized answer key for Reformed people is found in the Confessions and Catechisms. The answers to questions we have when we hit a snag, they can be found there. I use that as an illustration to simply say this. The problem with the Jews is the same problem Christians have today. We sometimes, although we value the catechisms and the confessions, we can be tempted to fall into just regurgitating the answers without ever seeking application of those truths to our own lives. The problem in that case is not the catechism. It's a heart that is indifferent to God. And so the Jews, by analogy, may have been catechized and instructed, but it was wasted word. They were simply hearers of God's law. Verse 13, the truth went in one ear and it went out the other, no application. And seventh, the Jew was confident in their teaching abilities. We see this in verse 19 In the beginning of verse 20. Paul says, and if, now this is continuing that conditional phrase that he began in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, and if you are sure of all these things, that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. He's continuing his thought, communicating the fact that Israel had a God-given responsibility to exercise a priestly ministry among the Gentiles. That's what he's getting at. You were to be teachers. Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, including the Gentile world. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, God says, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, physical blindness is spoken about with great frequency in the Bible, not merely because of the cultural reality of blindness due to unsanitary conditions and a lack of eye doctors, but also because of its theological parallel. And Paul is speaking theologically when he says here, if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. In fact, the law was so detailed that it was a duty to help the blind. Deuteronomy twenty seven eighteen. Curse be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people shall say amen. This is in the context of the curses on Mount Ebal that the people said, may God curse us if we disobey God. Jesus is the fulfillment of this command because he obeyed God's law. He was God's faithful servant. You remember that he, that he healed scores of blind people. In fact, that was proof that he was the Messiah. Are you the one who was to come? John sends messengers to Jesus and Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. In other words, that is evidence that I am the Messiah. The Bible says that guides were needed for the blind, Deuteronomy 27, and that is why some brought a blind and mute man to Jesus in Matthew 12 for him to heal. Well, physical blindness had a theological parallel in spiritual blindness. Jesus knew this, the Jews knew this, and so that's what Paul's getting at when he says, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. They were convinced that they were a light for the blind, but Isaiah says of God's people... Who is blind but my servant Israel? As my messenger whom I send, who is blind but my servant, the servant of the Lord? And Isaiah goes on to say that the Messiah would be the Lord's true chosen servant, the one who would do what the nation failed to do. He would come from heaven He would be of Israelite stockage, but he would be a guide to the blind. Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, For a long time, God says, I have restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will lead the blind in paths that they have never known. I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do. And the context, through the Messiah. He would be a light to the Gentiles. In fact, quoting from Isaiah 29, later in Romans 11, Paul will say that Israel was rendered blind herself as a form of judgment for failing to be a light to the blind. Skip with me, if you will, over to chapter 11. Where Paul says this, he says in verse seven, what then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Verse eight, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. But here in Romans 2, he's also echoing something else Isaiah says. Notice the end of verse 19. They prided themselves on being a light to those who are in darkness. Again, Isaiah spoke of Israel's priestly duties. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant of the people a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind. That was what Israel was supposed to do. It's what they failed to do. It's what Christ did for for them as a representative of the truly elect Israelites of God the rest were hardened and blinded themselves this is not some new fangled teaching that paul is alluding to here In fact, you remember God's words to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So when God chose Israel, He meant for Israel to be a vehicle of blessing, to be a light to the world. But instead, Israel was proud of her name, Jew, for her own sake, not God's glory. And therefore, it affected even others outside of Israel, namely the Jews. They were forsaken. In fact, Jesus alludes to this He refers to the religious leaders in Matthew 15. He says, oh, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. In fact, Jesus very directly said to the religious leaders that they were cursed because of their tradition. And they were actually making idols of themselves because instead of instructing and teaching people with the light of God's word, they were pointing people to the traditions that they had set up and therefore making an idol of themselves. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees these hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That's your ministry. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a Gentile proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind God. You see, the religious leaders in particular and the nation as a whole were more interested in fooling themselves and thinking they were great teachers. They gave themselves five stars. Jesus gave them zero stars because the reality was they were recruiting people to hell, not heaven. They were rendering people more blind because of their traditions. They were leading their students to darkness, not to light. They were blind guides leading sinners into the pit of hell, as Jesus said, because of their legalism ritualistic, moralistic, works-oriented religion. And that's why Paul says in verse 20 that they claim to be an instructor of the foolish. Notice your Bibles. That's a reference to the Gentiles. They were viewed as fools. And you claim to be a teacher of children. But they themselves were not acting like God's children, were they? They were fools and they were acting like a spoiled rich kid because God had blessed them nationally. And as my dad used to say, they simply got too big for their britches. They were full of pride. Now notice Paul rounds off the self-confident characteristics of the Jew, number 8, because they bragged about, the end of verse 20, the fact that they possessed knowledge and truth. Paul says at the end of verse 20, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The word embodiment, morphosis, it could be translated semblance or appearance. So everything was about appearance. It was a veneer for the Jew, Paul is saying. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, five, Paul says that some hold to a form or a morphosis, same word, a form or an appearance, a semblance of godliness, although they have denied its power. That was the religious Jew that rejected Christ. They had the appearance that they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That is the classic definition of a religious person. They had everything in appearance only. They were moralistic. They were legalistic, narcissistic, synthetic, fake, hypnotic, monastic, dogmatic, schizophrenic, ascetic, generic, and sadistic. And for the religious Jew, they were also ethnic. You had to become Jewish in your lifestyle and marked by outward circumcision following all of the tradition. You see what Paul is doing here. He is ridiculing the Jew. He is using irony to say, say, wow, you are quite impressive. Your resume looks really good. High quality ink, high gloss paper, wonderful track record, achievements galore. But I just have some questions for you. If you are so knowledgeable and superior, if you're so capable as a teacher, have you ever considered examining your own life? And not what you say you are, but who you actually are, how God views you, and how other people see your hypocrisy. So Paul is scrutinizing the Jews. And he's taking their religious credentials, their spiritual card, away from them. And he's saying, you're on probation until you can prove to me that you're actually living what you say and what you tell other people to do. So we move from this pictorial characterization by Jews to a profitable examination of Jews in verses 21 and 22. Paul asks a series of four rhetorical questions to this imaginary Christ-rejecting Jew who was trusting in his status and and his achievement. Notice, first of all, he asks, since you teach others, do you also teach yourself? This question is taken from verse 21. He takes the Jews adamance at great at face value. You then, who teach others, okay, well, I'll take it for granted that you teach others, but do you not teach yourself? That's a soul-searching question indeed. The answer to which Paul already knew was in the negative, as is the answer to all of these questions. The Jews were not practicing what they taught. There are really four kinds of teachers when you boil it down. There's the type of teacher who teaches a Himself, but not others. That was unthinkable in the Jewish setting for a father to become an expert in his trade or craft and never impart that knowledge to a son. But there was a second sort of teacher that, that taught others but didn't teach himself. This is hypocrisy. This is unhelpful. It's unhealthy. Then there's a third type of teacher who teaches himself and others. This is really the ideal. And then there is one who teaches neither himself nor others. That's a train wreck. Well, it's the second type of teacher Paul has in mind, one who teaches others but doesn't teach himself. And if Paul were to give a a, um, a test question on this to the Jews with multiple choice, they would have never picked that second type of teacher, one who teaches others but doesn't teach himself. They were blinded even to the reality of what sort of teacher they really were. And so Paul asks another question in verse 21, you preach against stealing, but do you steal? Notice he says, while you preach against stealing, verse 21, do you? steal. It's interesting, Paul switches from the Greek word didasko, which he used to talk about um, teaching um, in verse 21, and, and he moves to use this word preach. It's keruso. Now, it is true that all preaching contains teaching, but not all teaching contains preaching. For example, in my teaching, I, I am typically more elastic and take great liberty in what I teach because I want the student to join me in the discovery of what I'm saying. It's sort of a hands-on laboratory sort of mindset. But preaching is the proclamation of God's truth. There is very little wiggle room with preaching. So how do you tell the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, the answer, I think, is passion. It's passion. A true preacher will have passion. And the way that you detect that he's in preaching mode is when he says, thus saith the Lord when his voice raises. But teaching can be somewhat flexible. Sometimes the preacher says what he intends, but it's either misrepresented or misunderstood. And at other times, the preacher says something he didn't intend to say, and it results in confusion. I think I've said this before, but many years ago at another pastorate, I got fired up in the pulpit one day over the issue of masculinity. And I said, I love, masculinity and that is why I believe all men should love football and what people heard was and beers. Now I didn't really say that but I got scores of text messages that week. Half of the congregation was up in arms that their preacher would love football and beer. The other half was happy. Finally they had a preacher who loved to drink beer like the rest of the deacon board. Now preaching can be an occupational hazard and that's what Paul's saying here for the Jews. He's saying to them, you don't just teach against stealing, you preach against. You are so passionate about it. You raise your voice, you enter preaching mode, but here's the problem. You're a bunch of thieves. Sometimes passion and trying to tell others how they should live is a cover for one's own sinful lifestyle. And they're trying to shine the limelight on someone else, deflecting attention away from their own consistencies. And in that case, Paul is saying, you need to keep your mouth shut. James three one: let not many of us, James says, become teachers because we we incur a stricter judgment by God. Well, Paul asks a third question in verse 22. It amounts to this. You say others shouldn't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? Verse 22, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? It's possible that Paul is conflating stealing and adultery together here because Psalm 50 says, "But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? If you see a thief, you are pleased with him." And you you keep company with adulterers. And it is true that adultery is a form of stealing. It's taking someone else's spouse to use for your own pleasure. John Calvin believes that stealing and adultery are meant to be viewed really together here. He calls hypocrites prattlers. And he defines prattlers as people who show make a show of God's word by making so much of it that it becomes clear they don't really believe what they're saying and they're not practicing what they're saying. In today's vernacular, we would call this preaching. Someone who gets preachy and that is distasteful to the listener because the lemon of hypocrisy tinges the flavor and people can tell and it gives christianity a bad name and i think that's what paul's getting at now the next question has varying opinions on its interpretation essentially paul says in verse 22 you who hate you say you hate idols but do you have any notice verse 22 he says you who abhor idols very strong word do you rob temples Israel had historically, as you well know, slipped in and out of idolatry, but by the time of Paul's day, by the time of Roman occupation, the Jews were very sensitive to any forms of idolatry. In fact, you remember in Jesus's day, some people wondered whether or not it was idolatry to pay taxes because on Roman currency, there was a picture of the Caesar and they viewed that as an image or an icon. And by paying the tax, they were committing idolatry. That's what some Jews believed. Of course, Jesus said, that's not really idolatry. You're reading into that. Pay the attack. But in Paul's day, Paul had to convince Gentile Christians that they needed to be sympathetic to Jewish Christians because Jewish Christians had a tender conscience about eating meat sacrificed to idols. They had grown up their whole life detesting idolatry, probably because of all the exiles they had went through because they had committed idolatry in the past. So they were sensitive to it. And, and to a Jew, idolatry reeked. It was a terrible sin. In fact, that Greek word abhor, underline it in your Bible, it translates the Greek word bedeluso. It literally means to reek or to stink. And the prophets spoke about how idolatry was a stench in God's nostrils. So it could be that when Paul says, Do you rob temples? Um, It was a question regarding Jews themselves who robbed their own temple by not paying tithes faithfully because a, a Jew would not ever want to deal with an idol. And in this sense, it might be connected with stealing mentioned in verse 21. You remember that Malachi charged the Jews of his day of stealing because they withheld tithes and offerings in Malachi 3. They robbed God. On the other hand, do you rob temples could be connected with physical idols that Jews robbed from Gentile temples. This was common in Paul's day. It was considered dirty money to steal an idol made of gold that was belonged to a Gentile to make money off of it because you sold it. In fact, God forbid this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He said, the graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord. If you remember in Acts chapter 19, the town clerk of Ephesus actually cleared the apostle Paul and his associates from being guilty of robbing temples because that's what they were accused of. So it's possible that Paul has literal physical idols in mind because there's sufficient historical evidence that indicates this was a dirty business that Jews partook in. However, I believe when Paul says, do you rob temples? He is referring to idols that are tucked away in the heart. It, it could be an idol of success, an idol of money an idol of position or prestige or or carnal thoughts or wicked preoccupations but given the trajectory of the passage which has to do with hypocrisy i think when paul speaks about idols he's speaking about those hidden away in hearts and i have no qualms with the other ways people interpret it because it essentially means the same thing a physical idol outward or an inward idol is an abomination to the lord it is the epitome of sacrilegious scandal and irreverent conduct for one to act as high and mighty some spiritual guru and to say I don't really have any idols is only fooling himself Paul is saying essentially by asking this rhetorical question in verse 22 you who abhor idols do you rob temples he's saying clean the idols out of your own temple heart before pointing your finger and trying to teach others to remove idols from their life and just on a side note I think we do a good job of covering our own idols conveniently because we sort of shine the mag light on others and point out their idols while we have hidden away our own idols in our hearts this is essentially what israel did you remember the flea market bizarre atmosphere of the temple grounds and jesus came in you remember this and the jews said well what's the big deal we're simply providing animals for sales so people can obey the law and jesus says something like yeah i know but how much are you ripping off your fellow Jew?" You serve idols. In fact, Jesus says when he cleanses the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robber. And when Jesus said that, he was quoting Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. Isaiah 56, 7 says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That is for all nations, for all Gentiles. Do so you see where Paul is going with this? He's saying that the Jews were to be guides to the blind. They were to shine the light of God's truth and salvation as the covenant people of God in the dark world of the Gentiles. But instead of doing that, they were hypocrites. They were participating in the same wicked forms of idolatry. And this takes us to the third soul-searching way that Paul takes the legs out from underneath the self-confident Jew. That is a powerful accusation to the Jews. Verses 23 and 24. Notice he finally charges them. Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the In other words, I know the answers to the questions I ask. You're a hypocrite. And he provides a shocking result in verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is a quote that is probably taken from Isaiah 52, 5, possibly also Ezekiel 36, 22, a sort of conflation of two prophecies. Paul did this often. If you read the Greek Septuagint, the wording is strikingly similar here in verse 24 to the Greek Septuagint's version of Isaiah 52:5. But the point is, who was responsible Responsible for God being blasphemed among the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, it is you, Jew. It is you. He's pointing his finger because of you. Throughout their history, the shocking and tragic accusation of blasphemy by gentiles it was the jews fault god's name was blasphemed and mocked among gentiles why well because jews constantly shot themselves in the foot they fell into idolatry and were led in captivity and judged by god what did that do it gave an opportunity or gave rise for the gentiles to say to the jews huh some God you have, He's judging you. And in fact, in this sort of world, especially in the Greco-Roman world, you were like your God. So if you committed horrible crimes and terrible sins, you know what that meant? It meant you were just acting like your God. You see, the Jews, far from bringing the light of truth to Gentiles, actually kept them in their darkness because the way they lived said something that was untrue God that he too was evil. Tragically for the Jews, their sins led to their captivity. Tragically for the Gentiles, this kept them in darkness. And most tragically, instead of God being glorified, he was blasphemed. This is just like an incompetent presidential administration during an ill-advised war, stripping the nation of money, spelling defeat. It makes... That administration looked thoroughly incompetent. That's what Israel did. Because of their sins, they were led into captivity. It made it look like God was incompetent because he couldn't keep his own people in line. We won't take the time this morning, but if you go and read Hosea 9, one and you go and read Ezekiel chapter 16, you will find that Israel, far from being a nation of priests, as God called her to be, she was a nation of prostitutes. She whored around with the Egyptians. She whored around with the Assyrians and God says you essentially are the worst kind of whore because you don't even take money for your services. You're just like the world. And what was the result? God himself looked like a pimp because he had all of these Israelites whoring around. That is the guilt of the Jew. But there are four soul-searching ways that Paul removes the self-confidence of the Jew. First, a pictorial characterization by the Jews, verses 17 through 20. Second, a profitable examination of the Jews, verses 21 through 22. Third, a powerful accusation to the Jews. We just saw that. This leads, number four, to a practical consideration for the Jews, verses 25 through 29. Paul moves from the law that they prided themselves in to the circumcision they trusted in he counters their false security first in verses 25 through 27 by giving this hypothetical reality about circumcision notice the principle in verses 25 and 26 we'll begin in verse 25 paul says for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision in other words let me put this to you very simply their un, their, their circumcision rather became to them a Just as the possession of the law had made them guilty, their circumcision made them guilty. Jews believe somehow that circumcision secured for them automatic salvation. For example, our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. Another rabbi, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Another Jewish source says, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should ever go there. So essentially, they were trusting in circumcision for salvation. And though they were under Mosaic legislation, the Jew was still part of the covenant of grace that God had made with Abraham. But they trusted inherently in circumcision as a means of grace value that's why Paul says in verse 25 that circumcision indeed is of value but the circumcision was in the context of a covenant It wasn't some magical rite that had merit in and of itself. You remember Paul said in Galatians 5, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. The true value of circumcision was seen in its attachment to the covenant because it served as a covenant sign and seal, not a bare sign. No, it spoke of God's promise to Abraham and his offspring. It served as a pledge on God's part that he would fulfill the promise of the covenant. So it adds a couple of perspectives from a natural, a national perspective. The circumcised Jew fulfilled his part by seeking to obey God. That was its national value, as Paul says in verse twenty-five. It is a value if you obey the law. But if he did this as a circumcised Jew, God would give him national blessing. The problem is they were only focused on the national blessing and the outward right. Circumcision, most importantly, was primarily a spiritual right. Paul calls it a seal of the righteousness of faith in another place. So circumcision gave assurance to Abraham and all first generation believers that God would be faithful to his promise. It was a spiritual promise that was received by faith and it resulted in obedience and a walk of faithfulness. For the second, third, fourth generation Jew, it also was a pledge to God's promise. When that little boy was big enough to walk and talk, his parents would tell him he was circumcised and that would serve as assurance to him of the promises of God. But Paul's point here is that if the national or spiritual aspects are broken, one of them or both of them through disobedience, then circumcision has no value. For circumcision indeed is a value, verse 26, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's important to note that Paul is exposing the error. He's not really giving a theology of circumcision. I've given that to you so you can understand it. But really in verse 25, Paul's saying, okay, if you want to, I will play the hypothetical legalistic game of the Jew. Calvin says, and I quote, they thought that circumcision was of itself sufficient for the purpose of obtaining righteousness. Hence, Paul speaks according to that opinion. He gives this reply that if this benefit be expected from circumcision, it is on this condition that he who is circumcised must be perfect. And Calvin goes on to ask the question, why was this erroneous emphasis placed on circumcision? And I quote, For it always happens, Calvin says, that those who dare to set up their own merits against the righteousness of God glory more in outward observances than in real goodness. That was the point. So in verse 26, Paul draws a hypothetical inference from that principle they operated off of in verse 25. Notice your Bibles. So, along that line of thinking, Paul says, If a man who is uncircumcised, that's a Gentile keeps the precepts of the law will not his uncircumcision then be regarded as circumcision? Now, he's not saying that a Gentile, that is a man uncircumcised, can actually pull off keeping the law, the precepts of the law, perfectly, and that therefore his uncircumcision could be regarded as circumcision. No, he's speaking hypothetically. He's clear in chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. He said in chapter 1, verse 17, that that the righteousness of God comes through faith. This hypothetical scenario was the principle that the Jew worked from, and what Paul is trying to do is get him to consider, if you think that way, if you think that What you do through some right of circumcision, instead of having faith like Abraham, will somehow give you guaranteed access to the eternal blessings of God. Not only were you not rightly and consistently obey God's law, but you through your legalistic mindset will actually prove to be a hypocrite and prove that you could never be justified before God based on a ritual. Calvin says Paul simply intended to lay down a supposed case, that's a hypothetical case, that if any Gentile could be found who kept the law, his righteousness would be of more value without circumcision than the circumcision of the Jew without right. So Paul is saying, you want to argue that way, let's argue that way, and let's find out where we go. Now we're going to talk a lot about circumcision in the weeks to come, but I, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians just for a moment, because says sort of the same sort of thing here. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And notice he says in verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul says these Jewish teachers who are telling you you need to be circumcised in addition to faith in Jesus, Paul says, I wish that they would just go and castrate themselves. In other words, you think circumcision is so valuable, well, you're just cutting off a piece of skin. Go cut your testicles off. Because that would truly be a spiritual person. And he's actually playing off of the ancestry of the Galatians. Their ancestors were from Gaul. And in Gaul was a huge temple erected for a pagan goddess. And the priests of that temple were men who castrated themselves and dressed like women to perform priestly services. And what Paul is saying is you want to truly be spiritual. You have a better chance of castrating yourself, dressing like a woman, and becoming a pagan. That's exactly what Paul getting at. And so when he says in verse 26, If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcised be regarded as circumcision? I mean, my goodness, even some pagan who's been castrated and dresses like A woman, even that person probably has some moral dignity to at least be faithful to their God, but you are a Jew who glories in circumcision, and you don't live the life God has prescribed. So after providing the erroneous principle with devastating consequences, Paul doubles down with the real problem. Verse 27, notice that then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. Wow. The Jew is actually going to condemn you on judgment. Day, you who have the written code, the law of God, and have circumcision, but you have broken the law. Now he didn't literally mean that the physically uncircumcised, that's the Gentile who keeps the law, better than the Jew who Jew, who he condemns, who has the written code and circumcision, but has broken the law. He, he doesn't mean that on God's witness stand on the final day that the Gentile is going to pronounce judgment. He's saying something similar to what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees. He said this: An adulterous and evil generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's speaking there about his resurrection. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days. Jesus was in the tomb three days. And then Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, Matthew 12. In other words, through their repentance, the proof was in the pudding. They were the true people of God, Ninevites, Gentiles. And the evidence of their lives on judgment day, just by being there, they don't have to say anything, just by being there, in heaven itself, they will condemn you, like evidence in the court of law. Because it's not what you say you do, it's what you do that says it all. That's what Paul is saying. So after giving this hypothetical reality about circumcision, that if it was true, a Jew would have to be perfect to acquire salvation, Paul speaks about the actual reality about circumcision in verses 28 and 29. First negatively, verse 28, what a true Jew is not, and then positively what a true Jew is, verse 29. Notice negatively what a true Jew is not. Paul says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. Or if you like, the same thing he says in chapter 9, verse 6, they are not all of israel who have descended from israel no one is a jew who is merely one outwardly whether ethnically or gentile proselyte you can't just circumcise yourself and think that you're accepted by god nor is circumcision outward and physical in the final analysis as verse 28 says that is it's not a magical ceremony securing eternal blessing. And then notice positively what a true Jew is, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is not novel. Jeremiah spoke about the days of the new covenant when the Spirit of God would be poured out. And that took place on the day of Pentecost. This doesn't mean that circumcision of the heart and the Spirit of the man, done by the Holy Spirit, didn't take place in the Old Testament. Of course it did. The Spirit regenerated hearts and indwelled His people in the Old Testament. Otherwise, how do you make sense of Deuteronomy ten sixteen, Deuteronomy thirty verse six, Jeremiah four four, Jeremiah nine thirty six, Leviticus twenty six forty one, and a ton of other verses where God says, "Circumcise the foreskin of your heart." That is what matters. The work of God's grace is a work on the inside by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. You can't obey enough to be accepted by God. You need a substitute. So circumcision, Paul says the true kind, is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Not by the letter. Paul would say in another place, He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, you Jews are still living under the old covenant in such a way that is not recognized the newness of the new covenant, the pouring out of the Spirit on Jews and Gentiles, all who believe, empowering them. So being a faithful and truly saved member of God's covenant people means we're true Jews inwardly. We've been circumcised in our hearts. We are sons of Abraham by faith, Galatians 3.7. This is done by the Spirit, not by the flesh in obedience to the law, and therefore we win God's approval because God does it, and therefore we shouldn't care about man's approval. Notice the end of verse 29. His praise, the true Jew, is not from man but from God. It's from God. Remember Jesus told the religious leaders, you will have your reward because you do all your showy religious stuff in front of others for them to applaud you. You have your reward, that's it. You get no reward in heaven. You reveal yourself to not be a true Jew. It's essentially what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6. Now all of this, I think, critically needs to be applied to our own context. This is, uh, on the surface, how in the world does this apply? Well, remember... Paul is writing to Gentiles. That's who lived in Rome, who made up the church, majority Gentiles. They were people just like you and I. They were Gentiles who had now become true Jews. And so, what he's providing here for us are several doctrines. One is a doctrine of ecclesiology. He's saying that we are true Jews, verse 17. And verse and and Gentiles verse twenty four are watching us, so we need to be sure that they are not blaspheming the name of God. We are sons of Abraham by faith. The old covenant is done with, but we're still in the covenant of grace and the new covenant administration of that. And there's still a mixture of sheep and goat. So we need to examine ourselves. Just because we're part of the church doesn't necessarily mean. We've been eternally blessed by God. In fact, in chapter 11, this becomes more clear. Paul says, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Speaking about God breaking off the Jewish branches, grafting in the Gentile branches. That is true, Paul says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So this passage teaches us something about the doctrine of the church. There's always sheep and goats. Secondly, something about the doctrine of epistemology. We read in verse 20 about knowledge and truth. And verse 21, that because we have knowledge and truth, there's a sense in which we've all become teachers. So James 3.1 can be applied to any official teacher in the church. But I also think in a secondary way, all Christians have a knowledge and a truth and therefore are in some sense a teacher, whether it's a parent or or whether it is someone in the workplace witnessing to an unbeliever. And with that comes great responsibility. Because you who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor temples, do you rob temple? You see, theology is not a game in the head. It's a trade of the heart. And we need to shatter our own mirrors and look to Scripture as a mirror to evaluate our lives. And this leads us to the doctrine of orthopraxy. It's not just what we believe, it's what we practice. And we reveal our true belief by being consistent with the law of God. The law is not an enemy to the Christian. It is his enemy in the sense that it can't save him, but it is a friend to the true Christian because he wants to delight in obeying God. And you evaluate yourself by looking into the mirror of God's word, James one twenty five. This passage also te- teaches us about the doctrine of covenant theology. Parents who are believers and their children are part of the covenant and are true Jews. Um, I read earlier Genesis 17, you you don't have to turn there, but that was an everlasting covenant. Abraham fell on his face and what does God say? I will establish my covenant between me and you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Circumcision has been replaced by baptism. So, when Paul speaks here about circumcision, we need to think about, in our own context, baptism. And God has given baptism to be a sign, an everlasting sign of his everlasting covenant to believers and their children. And this shouldn't make us proud. We have the responsibility to raise covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. We don't say, well, we have Abraham as our father with our heads held high. No, we put our heads down in humility and say, we have Abraham as our father. And we put our hands to the plow to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord there's also something here about the doctrine of anthropology this is doctrine of man man has always either been in covenant with God or outside the covenant and being inside the covenant doesn't guarantee eternal blessing the hypocrisy of the Jews here in verses 21 through 22 you who teach others do you teach yourself you who steal do you steal yourself You who commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. We need to understand that we are hardwired to legalism and to judging others and not considering our own hearts. What did Paul say in Galatians 5? He said, I'm not going to boast in circumcision. I'm going to boast in Jesus Christ. I'm going to boast in the law of God. So there's several practical uses of this passage. Number one. It teaches us that the self-righteous religious person's problem is the same in every age. He measures himself against man's standards instead of God's law. And Paul, the thrust of what he's saying here is you ought not to do that. He says in 2 2 Corinthians 10, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. In other words, they've missed the whole point. When someone compliments us For our spirituality, we want to say, yes, thank you very much. I've noticed that about myself as well. And when someone criticizes us, we we want to be defensive. Rather, we should say, as I said at the beginning, you know what? I'm far worse than you can see I am on the outside. We ought to pray for each other, even as potentially we confront one another. But we don't weaponize church discipline to make ourselves look more superior than others. That's a self-righteous person. Another practical use of this passage is that a Christian's testimony tells non-Christians what God is like. Remember, Verse 24, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We know chapter one verse twenty that the unbeliever is without excuse before God if he doesn't believe in God and have faith in Christ. But Paul's point is don't give them a reason to think they are excused before God because of your ungodly living and they just wash their hands of God and and say, well, God can't exist. You remember Jesus said, "Let your light shine before other men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." A lamp is meant to be put on a lampstand, not hidden away. And so I believe very firmly that all Christians should have relationships with non Christians and. I don't just mean on the surface. I mean deep relationships where they have an opportunity to show them the light of God's truth so they don't blaspheme God, but glorify him. There's a third use of this passage. That is that external Christian rites, such as Lord's Supper and baptism, are always overemphasized when Christianity is in decline. Paul uses circumcision here in verses 25 and 28. But do you view prayer as a get out of jail free card or do you delight? and fellowshipping with God through prayer? Do, do you do you seek perfect attendance at church just to keep appearances up? That, that's self-righteousness. Do you tithe from a heart that wants the gospel to be made known in God's world, from the rising of the sun even to its setting, to make His name great among the Gentiles? Or do you give money to be noticed and maybe to buy favor or prestige or to seek your agenda? Do you trust in your baptism or your church membership? You see, baptism replaces circumcision. But because the sign of baptism is placed upon babies who oftentimes are not believers at that moment, we can grow up in an atmosphere of thinking that we're okay because we've had the signs and the seal. We need to be careful. External rights and overemphasis on that is always a marker of a lack of true spirituality. But then practical use number four, the sacraments are not magical, but neither are they devoid of power. They shouldn't be despised. You know, when Paul speaks negatively about circumcision, you understand that he's not speaking about it negatively from God's point. God told the Israelites to be circumcised. What he's saying is that they distorted that sacrament. And Christians can do that today with baptism. They can assume that just baptizing their children makes them automatically those who enter heaven. I've known many Baptists who don't believe in infant baptism and they raise their children far more better than some Presbyterians because they raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and they understand this child needs to hear the gospel and give evidence of true repentance. They can't just attach themselves to their parents' faith or to the covenant. And that's why at our church we joyfully embrace baptists as members full-fledged members because we understand their children whether they've had the right of circumcision or the right of baptism applied to them or not hopefully they're all circumcised apparently that's healthy to do but just because they don't have the right of baptism applied to them doesn't mean they're not part of the covenant those children are still part of the family of God and then a practical use number five God sees your heart and that should provide true peace to the Christian don't worry about false accusations from religious people. Your praise is from God, not man. And we know that salvation only comes through Christ, not religion. Every time Paul mentions the law, he's pointing us to Christ. He's pointing us to our sin. And finally, when we meet Jesus in chapter 3 and verse 21, we will be relieved to know that Jesus paid it all, and all to Him we owe. I'll close with this. A lady once told Charles Spurgeon, I pray for you every day that you would not become proud. Spurgeon responded by saying, You put me in a mind of my own neglect, for I have never prayed that prayer for you, and I must begin. Oh no, said the woman, you don't need to pray for me in that way because there's no danger of me being proud. And Spurgeon said, then I'd better begin at once for you are proud already. May we boast in Christ. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.